I'm John Gormley. Good to have you here. So the uh, pretty gray day continues. It's getting a bit brighter in some parts of the province, but uh, ah, click those headlights on so people can see your taillights if you're one of our road warriors today. Uh, we're going to have an update, uh, what appears to be coming a bit more clear in that uh, terrible wounding of a police officer in Estevan yesterday morning in the processing center at the police station where he was shot. Uh, the perp who shot him apparently has died on the operating table. He was shot by the police and we're, I, I'm speculating a bit, but I think we can weave together what happened. And a woman died earlier in the day in a family uh, domestic uh, issue as well, which led to this. It's just a terrible uh, tragedy in the small city of Estevan. You know, we haven't had a good chat in ages about FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This is something that is relatively rare in some communities in this province in particular, FASD has been a scourge, and particularly in the youth criminal justice courts, you will remember the stories, and some of them go back decades now, of young people with FASD, highly impressionable, getting involved in serious uh, criminal activity and affecting their lives and so many others. So there is a nationwide FASD conference on in Saskatoon, three days, and it's on next week. One, there'll be many, many experts uh, involved in this, but one of the people uh, very involved is the executive director of the Canada FASD Research Network, Audrey McFarlane, who hails from Cold Lake, just across the line from Saskatchewan in Alberta, where locally in Cold Lake, she's been at the forefront of FASD uh, work and now nationally uh, involved in the organization. And we find her in Cold Lake this morning. Hey, great to have you here. Thanks so much for taking our call. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm great. It's great to be here. I was noticing, uh, and by the way, congrats on the uh, Alberta uh, Medal of Honor um, that we have won like this in Saskatchewan. Not a lot of people get these Alberta Order of Excellence medals. That was great. Oh, thank you so much. It's uh, it's quite humbling to receive such an, an honor, and on the same day that Stephen Harper received his, so that that was uh, extra special. Now, your work, um, and this comes from uh, where you are in Cold Lake. It comes from a personal passion. You've been doing FASD work for years. Yes, for quite a long time, since the early nineties, I got involved uh, with a group of folks who were. Uh, very problematic for service providers and very interesting to me to uh, to try to figure out what was going on with them and discovered that they had all been prenatally exposed to alcohol and started my journey. If you can explain for listeners who might not be acquainted, what is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Yeah, sure. So it's a disability that occurs when... Uh, Babies or fetuses are exposed to alcohol during development. Um, and the disability can range from a whole bunch of different things. Depends on how much alcohol they were exposed to, when the alcohol was ingested. Um, and so pretty much whatever is developing at the time that they're exposed to the alcohol gets impacted in some way. So it could be a physical disability like cleft palates, could be, um, a, you know, a bone, uh, abnormalities, but we're mostly concerned about the development of the brain because that occurs 
throughout the entire pregnancy. Um, and uh, so that can be a whole range of things uh, for folks, a poor memory, difficulty making uh, decisions, poor judgment, um, it can, learning disabilities, all kinds of things can be impacted uh, by this. Is there a gestational point somewhere in that 35, 38 weeks where it's, we know there could be the most damage from from alcohol? Well, we know that the entire pregnancy is at risk, um, but we know that the first six weeks of pregnancy is the most susceptible to the alcohol. And that's when all the brain hardwiring is being developed, um, which is why it becomes so complicated for folks. So they look normal. Um, sometimes they even talk like they know what they're talking about. And um, so it's difficult to pick them out initially. But it's, you know, I have to take exception with one of the things you said in the intro. It's not a rare disability. It's very common. So we know that about 4% of Canadians have this disorder, which means, to give your listeners some context, more than autism, folks with autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, all combined. Wow. I see. I was taking four as relatively rare, but when you put it in that context, that's not rare. No, it's, it's very common. It's like one in 20 people. I would think under-reporting and even under-diagnosis or recognition is, is a thing you have to deal with? Um, there is certainly a lot of stigma that goes along with this disability, but um, it is interesting that you, that the diagnostic capacity in Canada is pretty low and it's pretty sporadic across the country. Uh, so uh, it's interesting to know why the health systems haven't responded to such a common disorder in this way, but that's what we hope that this conference will bring some awareness to as well. Audrey McFarlane is the executive director of the Canada FASD Research Network. And uh, not only is she uh, one of the organizers, she's a presenter as well at this big conference. Uh, So what are the coordinates on the conference? You're in Saskatoon three days next week? That's right, at uh, TCU. um, Lovely conference facility that you have in Saskatoon there. We have um, about 600 attendees coming from all across Canada and also some international folks as well. Um, there'll be about 169 presenters um, over the three days, and uh, folks will have uh, eight different kinds of sessions each day, uh, each time frame to uh, to pick from. So lots of things going on for sure. That's a, that's amazing. Now I know that in this province, uh, many people in the childhood development area have been working on FASD. Is it still an issue that again four percent? And you know, I stand corrected. That's not that rare in certain communities, uh, particularly uh, indigenous communities, rural indigenous communities. Are there higher incidences of of, of FASD? Well, you know, it is a legacy of colonialism. So. Um, when uh, people suffer trauma and they are dealing with that trauma with alcohol use, yeah. then for sure we are going to see some higher rates of, of FASD. However, um, they, that is not the only population that drinks during pregnancy. We have a national database 
for FASD. And there are more Caucasians in that database than there are Indigenous people in Canada. And so it's a bit of a fallacy that we point to Indigenous folks. And, you know, they were the first group to stand up in Canada and say, you know, we think that this is a problem. And it's so unfortunate that they then got painted with this issue because it certainly affects all of us. It's a good point, because most of the researchers we've spoken to over the years have told us what you've told us, but a lot of them got their start, you know, doing that research inside the Indigenous community many years ago. Um, but you point out that with that kind of prevalence, uh, this crosses cultures, it crosses uh, urban, rural, it crosses everything, doesn't it? Economics as well. So one of the highest risk groups in Canada is actually women who make over 80000 a year because alcohol is such an integrated part of our social structure. And women don't always know when they're pregnant. We're chatting with Audrey McFarlane, Executive Director of Canada's FASD Research Network. If people want to learn more about FASD, uh, about the conference and the work you're doing, what are the best coordinates, Audrey? Yeah, so probably our website at canfasd, C-A-N-F-A-S-D dot C-A, is uh, probably the best place for the most current and up-to-date information. And in terms of diagnostics, uh, are we getting better at different early stages of childhood development to, to know if a child has FASD? Yes, we are. Um, we have more evidence now um, to be able to identify kids earlier. We still don't have good screening tools, though. So if there is a billionaire out there that wants to make a big impact, we would happily take their, their, their donation to develop those. But it's really hard for teachers, uh, social workers, early childhood educators to identify these kids early on. And we do know that the earlier that they're identified and get diagnosed, the better outcomes that they have as well. So, you know, off the top, you talked about how impacted youth justice is and adult criminal justice as well. That's not because they have this disability. It's because the support systems haven't been implemented to put around them. Before I let you go, you've just opened up a very interesting thing. If if, if we're able to diagnose, particularly uh, the brain development, so judgment, decision-making, uh, compliability, these sorts of things, and a lot of kids with FASD you know, get into trouble because they're talked into it, they're very impressionable. What's the behavior modification or the cognitive work? Can some of that be done? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we can't change the structure of their brain, but just like kids with Down syndrome can learn to read and write and be productive citizens, these guys too, they're identified early, they get the structure, the routine, the consistency, and the supports around them early. We have many stories now of the strengths uh, that these folks have and uh, the successes that they have. So, for example, our conference is being emceed by an adult with FASD who is a public speaker and does some really great things. So, um, you know, that we can see how, how productive and uh, uh, when, they're, when they're well supported. Audrey, great meeting you today. Thanks for everything you do and uh, look forward to a great conference next week in Saskatoon. Right on. Thanks very much, John. Audrey McFarlane, Cold Lake, Alberta, Executive Director of the Canada FASD Research Network, and their website is can, C-A-N-F-A-S-D dot C-A. Gosh, it's been ages. I See, it's one of those areas we've talked about researchers. Um, you know, I keep, I mean, what, what, 
it was back in September. We did the 25th anniversary of the show. At different points, we've drilled down and had great experts on with FASD. But when Libby the other day said, hey, there's this big national conference on, want to chat with Audrey, I thought I hadn't heard. Audrey is one of the pace setters uh, in the Canada on this. Uh, she has run FASD programs out of Cold Lake for a long time, but does all sorts of national, international research, which is why she heads up the national group. And I thought it would be great to A, meet her, and B, get some insight into what we know about FASD, the research, and the children. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. So uh, must be something in the drinking water in police stations across Canada. Uh, not that forthcoming with information, but our hearts were just so heavy yesterday hearing that a police officer in Estevan in the processing center of police headquarters had been seriously wounded. Then we heard he'd been shot and the, now he's in stable condition, thank God. But the police in Estevan have not confirmed any deaths or any connection to an earlier domestic dispute. Uh, some great work being done by the print journalists at uh, Estevan Today and Discover Estevan, the uh, the weekly in Estevan, and folks are coming. Estevan's a small city, so here's what appears to have happened. 6-something a.m. yesterday, police are called to a really serious domestic dispute. A woman has been murdered. The man, they apprehend the suspect, brought to police headquarters about 7, 8 a.m. He's being processed later in the morning, and an altercation with an officer results in the man and the officer being seriously wounded. Now, we don't know what happened, but the man was clearly searched. I mean, you don't get brought into a police station with a gun. It turns out the officer was shot. So I am just surmising here, and I'm putting that qualifier on, quite likely that guy got his hand on a service revolver, you know, wrestled the guy, got his gun, whatever. The perp shoots the officer. Other officers quickly return fire, and the perp is shot. The perp and the officer are airlifted, emergency air ambulance uh, stars, to Regina. The perp, we're told by people in the know, died on the operating table uh, the officer is in stable condition. So two people are dead. Now, the relationship of the people is getting a lot of talk in Esteban. But this is what started. Apparently, this domestic dispute, then this breaks out at police headquarters. So that's all I know. But And I get that from some Esteban people. I get that from others. And no official confirmation yet of anyone dying. No official confirmation of uh, these other details, but it is what it is. And CERT, the Serious Incident Response Team at the province, which, as you know, is a civilian-led investigative body. They've had it in Alberta for years. In fact, one of the Alberta senior executives, came. he's a lawyer, came back to Saskatchewan. He runs CERT. Uh, they're literally on the scene as soon as injuries or deaths occur. So they have investigators. They're doing that side of it. Other police services also were brought in to investigate, too. So let's just hope that officer pulls through. That's what uh, we're pulling for right now. So 
I laughed. Who called it carbon jail? Um, was that Dustin Duncan? <laughs> okay. I like this. Um, and so minister of Sask energy, um, and says, uh, he doesn't think anybody's going to go to jail, but he would be prepared to go to carbon jail. Um, <laughs> this is Sask energy refusing as of the 1st of January, if Ottawa doesn't carve out our home heating use of a carbon tax, we use natural gas. They carved out and ended the carbon tax for home heating oil in the Atlantic, but not here. So as of January 1st, Saskatchewan, Sask Energy isn't charging and it's not going to remit. So we started the show this morning, though, a Gerard Kennedy, lawyer, a law prophet at the U of A, said there, you know, clearly if Ottawa pushed it, there are sanctions and things that could follow. But the aforementioned Ottawa is becoming a fascinating story today. So there is no end of commentary. Uh, it was very funny. Of course, anytime you read Rex Murphy, what's left of this shambling, shifting, scandal, adhesive liberal government? <laughs> Not much. And he talks about the eight painful years. He talks about a few fingers snapped and suddenly Mr. Trudeau cancels the carbon tax in the Atlantic. And then he says, cancel for one, you must cancel for all. And then he goes on and charts the path of this. And he says, the Atlantic excision, as I shall call it, from the imperious imposition of the world-saving carbon tax puts Trudeau in direct and executed opposition to his first and only principle that he would combat global warming. The tax is dead, the author did it in, and perhaps make that likely his party with it. So Rex Murphy just says, as again, virtually every commentator, left, right, and center in the last six days, Mr. Trudeau has done something here much, much beyond even what he thought he was doing in the most craven of political instincts. So Mark Carney looks like he's lining up to take a shot. Listener Greg weighs in and says, let the games begin. Let's talk about what all of this means to politics in Canada, shall we? Next on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. CKOM News for Dodge City, your feel-good... I'm drawing warmly, so here's the uh, way we thread together as you follow the bouncing ball. Uh, polls, which I repeat almost every day, polls are helpful, and only that, to show you general trend lines, and even there during elections. Uh, everybody's been polling like crazy, and the aggregator338.com has pulled together and collection of all the polls. They've got Polyev and company at 41%. You remember for the longest time they were hovering in that 37, 38, now 41. Liberals down around 25, 26, uh, the NDP in the teens. In seats, this would be getting pretty close to the Brian Mulroney 1984 biggest majority of all time. 
Uh, 282 seats were being contested back in 84. Mulroney and the Tories won 211 of them. That was big. Now there's 335, 338 seats, sorry. Uh, so speculation is Polyev could win somewhere in that range of low to, you know, 207, 208, 210. So who knows? But again, it's all moot. We're not going to have an election. So Mark Carney sits down with the Globe and Mail yesterday. Carney, former governor of the Bank of Canada, card-carrying liberal, always has been. Uh, his wife is a very, very left-wing progressive. Carney's one of the beautiful people in Canada, grew up, you know, merged through the Bank of Canada, then goes to the UK and runs the Bank of England. He's now the UN's special envoy on climate action, uh, and he chairs uh, Brookfield Asset Management, which is a pretty good company, chairman of the board. So Carney, speaking yesterday in Ottawa, sits down with the Globe, are you interested, have you ruled out running for the liberal leadership? It's not a decision I need to take now. Well, have you ruled it out? No, I have not. So he's in. Because if you're not going to run, you simply say, I'm not running. But uh, Carney, uh, and of course, coincidentally, was speaking in Ottawa yesterday. So he's been doing almost every two weeks. He shows up in Ottawa or in Toronto doing something where he muses away on politics and leadership and climate action, uh, which he's all about. Uh, he did say in the speech a uh, day before yesterday, remember we talked about this on the show yesterday, he was very couched and nuanced, but he doesn't think it is appropriate to give certain regions exemptions to carbon tax when we're all in this together. And a guy whose income in a year would be, I don't know, close to a million bucks a year. Um, he's in this with you. You know, he can't travel quite as much in his car. <laughs> he has problems getting bigger cuts of meat than smaller. I mean, oh, he's okay. Not, but he's going to make sure that we make the weather change over by paying a carbon tax. So Greg says, let the games begin. Carney has shot the first one across the bow, and an insider has commented on it. I think there are going to be a lot of comparisons between Mark Carney and Michael Ignatieff, both seen as outsiders, both come to rescue the Liberal Party. But I don't think it's appropriate. Michael Ignatieff was never the Prime Minister. He simply led the Liberal Party when they were out of power, and he did not succeed. The better comparison with Carney is Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who came from nowhere, was put in the cabinet, succeeded Pearson as the liberal leader, and then became the prime minister before the next election in 68. There are still two years to go. I think Mark Carney is going to win a liberal safe seat. He'll be put into the cabinet. There'll be a leadership race, and come the next election, Mark Carney will already be the Prime Minister. And it'll be Prime Minister Mark Carney facing off against Pierre Polyev. I just see this unfolding. That's Greg. And Greg's one of our gang who I trust. Got a lot of wisdom in politics. So, Joe Oliver 
to no one's surprise, in yesterday's National Post, writes a piece called For the Good of Canada, Justin Trudeau Should Go. Who's Joe Oliver? He was the final finance minister for Stephen Harper. So, of course, a conservative in retirement would want Trudeau to go. Same day, National News Watch, which is a very liberal news aggregator run by the Anderson brothers, liberals all, um, a guy named Percy Down wrote an op-ed piece yesterday in National News Watch. So Joe Oliver writes in the National Post newspaper, Trudeau must go, the Tory. Percy Down is a very prominent liberal. And he goes on about how Justin Trudeau saved the Liberal Party. Because, of course, after Stefan Dion, who succeeded Paul Martin, after Michael Ignatieff, the Liberals were in really, really dire straits. Justin Trudeau prevented the decline of the Liberals by winning government in 2015. So he goes on to say uh, that Mr. Trudeau has made significant shifts. He had a number of moderates in his party, and uh, he has made the point that Pierre Polyev, notwithstanding his soft focus ad campaign, has an agenda that all progressives will oppose. So Percy Down, why do I dwell on Percy Down? He's a senator from PEI appointed by the Liberals. He was the Liberal strategist and chief of staff for John Chrétien. Percy Down is a lifetime liberal. So he goes on to say Justin and the NDP could possibly squeeze enough seats to form a minority government next time. And he sort of argues as he whistles past the graveyard of 41% conservatives, but he makes the point. You know, we're still two years away from an election. The prudent course of action, though, is for another liberal leader to rise from the impressive liberal caucus and safeguard the policies Mr. Trudeau was actually able to accomplish, like the candidate child benefit. If the next liberal leader is able to bring the party back to the center of the political spectrum, the liberals have a chance of being reelected. So, long, tortured peace, and that's how Percy Down ends it. And he slugs it with, Percy Down is a lifelong Liberal Party supporter, former chief of staff to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. So as much a liberal as you could possibly find is looking for someone to bring the party back to the center of the political spectrum. So when you hear this many people saying to Justin Trudeau, you really have to leave, you get the feeling he's hearing it a lot which plays nicely into, remember we've talked about this how many times? I know you get tired of hearing it. His dad went for a walk on the 28th of February, 1984, and the next day, the 29th, leap year. So classic Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Justin and his dad have a lot of this showy, you know, worthy, unique people. So Pierre Elliott goes for a walk in the snow on the 28th, and then on the 29th announces he thought about it on his walk, and he's stepping down. So there's a very good chance this coming February, which, by the way, has 29 days. It's a leap year. Justin Trudeau could well do the same thing on the same day. So the Hill Times is running a piece, and they take Percy Downs' uh, piece on why Mr. Trudeau must step down. Uh, they go further and examine 
about how matters are being much more complicated by the national and the international controversies, and it's the Hill Times, right? So very liberal. And they, so they talk in the passive voice. Controversies that have created more headwinds for the liberal government. They would never suggest who might have caused some of these controversies. But then they go on to canvas Trudeau's announcement in September about the Indian government's alleged involvement in the killing of a Sikh, a Nazi appointed by the common speaker to honor the visit of President Zelensky, the ongoing war in Ukraine, which Canada has nothing to do with, now the Israel-Hamas conflict. Before these controversies, the liberals struggled for months dealing with allegations of foreign interference in Canadian elections. According to the polling aggregator 338canada.com, if an election happened today, the Conservatives would get 41% of the vote, the Liberals 27, the NDP 18. If Trudeau decides to stay on as party leader until the next election, and this is something Liberals love, he, he would be in the, 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 the annals of Johnny MacDonald and Wilfrid Laurier. Um, yeah, he would be technically a fourth run if he got elected. They had majority governments. They governed for years. This man has had one majority, two minorities, and at best would be elected to a third minority. But for history, four successful back-to-back-to-back-to-back elections, last time done by John A. MacDonald and Wilfrid Laurier. So with these annals of history, the last time it happened, writes the Hill Times, was 115 years ago. And although Trudeau has insisted since 2021 he will lead the party in the next election, liberal insiders say he must say that because the moment he even drops a hint about leaving, he will have lost all control over the government. And that's true. And he won't have any more ability in his caucus and his cabinet to assert his way. And, of course, with voters, he's done. So the Hill Times goes on to say, and they uh, talk about Percy Down conceding that it's a tough decision, and then they channel the liberal Ken Dryden. Remember Ken? We had Ken on last week here on his latest book. His book, The Game, where he says... At the peak of your NHL career, that's when you leave to go do other things. Or Bridget Bardot, who said, I leave before being left. So, of course, they're saying Mr. Trudeau is at the height of his power and his influence. I I don't quite see it that way, but again, I'm not a liberal in Hill Times or a liberal in National News Watch. But... Even those publications are now sending out clear signals. So what do you think is going to happen? The NDP, which is propping up the Liberal Party until the fall of 2025, shows no signs of changing or getting out of that supply and confidence agreement, which de facto has them in a coalition. Now, the NDP leader here, Carla Beck, had to be kidding. Her people said she had talked to the chief of staff of Jagmeet Singh. I could talk to the chief of staff of Jagmeet Singh. In fact, I actually talk to Mr. Singh all the time. But um, a leader of a provincial party hasn't had a one-on-one with Singh? 
stop supporting this prime minister on the carbon tax, stop propping up his government. So maybe she just had the chief of staff talk first. But if Carla Beck hasn't had a one-on-one conversation with Mr. Singh, um, this is saying even less about the impact of the Saskatchewan NDP, but I would expect she should. So what do you think lies ahead for, does Justin Trudeau step down? And then we get an appointed prime minister who becomes a liberal leader, and then that person runs in the next election. I think that's becoming pretty solidly the sense now. 877-332-8255. This is 980 CJME and 650 CKOM. So I was telling you about Percy Down, lifetime liberal, a senator in the Senate of Canada from PEI, appointed by the Liberals to the Senate. Former Chief of Staff to Jean Chrétien suggests, even though he would be leaving at the height of his game, <laughs> after eight years of excellent governance, yeah, okay, um, Justin Trudeau should step aside, make room for somebody else. And coming from a liberal who's that deep in the gravity well, that tells you something. Uh, Joe Oliver, a former conservative MP and cabinet minister in the Harper government, said much the same, except not all the accolades about the good part, said that uh, basically the prime minister is at a point now where he can no longer govern. And flip-flop on the carbon tax became the determining point. Uh, Don Martin, so you've got the liberal, you've got the conservative. Don Martin, kind of journalist emeritus for CTV, he weighs in as well and says the prime minister doesn't have a death wish. So the other day in the House of Commons, he merely dismissed Polyev's challenge to call an election as yet another campaign the liberals would win. Because Trudeau, Polyev just stood up and said, will you call an election on the carbon tax? Trudeau said, we've won the three in a row on the carbon tax and there's no need for an election. But I think Martin put it well. (laughs) Mr. Trudeau doesn't have a desire for a death wish because an election today would mean the liberals would be completely trounced and thrown from office. So Martin's theory is that while there's an increasing air of desperation, and he says it's not quite a death rattle, but it's a pileup of disasters and on and on. And he said one of the tells for him and you and I didn't chat about this much, was Mark Miller, a lawyer, safe Montreal seat for a liberal. I think he was Trudeau's best man. He's certainly a childhood friend of Justin Trudeau, was in his wedding party. Mark Miller, quote, a classier act in the cabinet, waited to the outstretched media microphones to say, Polyev is the sort of person, when you spend time around him, you want to check your wallet. And he's very, very dangerous to the state of democracy. And he says that kind of uncharacteristic smear by Trudeau's long-term, long-time buddy just didn't feel right. And he said it had an air of desperation about it. So his point is that as much as Pierre Polyev wants one, he's not going to get an election now, probably not even in 2024 because the Liberals will need another two years to stabilize their Keystone Cops cabinet, plot a new reason for their re-election, 
and hope that Polyev squanders what has become a huge lead. So probably no election, but again, he does he rules out Trudeau stepping down too. So it's all speculation, but interesting to do it. I'm Gormley, the latest from the News Center now on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM.